0: And it's wonderful to see everyone back, and in some strength. And, of course, with Joao DiCaprio coming to speak, could it have been otherwise? The notion of someone who does not need an introduction does not apply here. We are always proud to sing the praises of the illustrious speakers we've had, even when you know their credits better than I do. But Joao DiCaprio was professor of history at the University of Texas in Austin Where he teaches modern Arab intellectual history. He is best known to those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting him before through his many wonderful published works, including his um, Gatekeepers of the Arab Past, uh, Historians and History Writing, and 20th Century Egypt, which California brought out in 2009, and No Exit Arab Existentialism, his study of Jean Paul Sartre and uh, the colonization. Uh, and uh, that came out with Chicago in 2018. He is currently at work on a small and unambitious book of 18 chapters.
1: Maybe longer after this talk. We'll Might be longer after this talk,
0: that will be examining the first Arabs, an intimate history of their struggle for dignity and the aftermath of defeat which personally is a book that I cannot wait to see in print. And I'm hoping you're not going to make me wait too long for it. Tonight, we will be reconsidering the 60s generation in the Arab world and beyond. Would you all please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Professor Yuval Kappi. I'm going to in the audience so I can see your slides.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Uh, so I got interested in the 60s about 15 years ago, um, mostly because I wasn't too happy with the histories that I did read, which are very heavy on pan-Arabism or nationalism, uh, and very much centers on the 67 war and the defeat of the project. And in, in a way, most of the intellectual history, I mean, intellectual historians get go to the 50s, and then 50s, 60s, not much, except Pan-Arabism and Nasserism, and then 67 onwards. So I started reading um, sort of what I thought would be the intellectual corpus, the record from the late 40s to the early 70s, books, you know, treaties, novels, poetry, and so on. Um, and that's where I understood that the, the era is much more nuanced and rich than um, what, sort of the, what is buried under the defeat. One project that came out of it is taking the prism of existentialism, which is a small platform that was able to, uh, to, to get me into the 60s in a more broad way. But then I realized there's, there's a bigger story to tell. Uh, so mostly today I'm going to go over how I think about the 60s I, I would imagine kind of more historiographical, but historical. But in general, within this sort of ecology of writing about the 60s, part of the problem is that uh, as soon as 9-11 happened, um, 67 became the, 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 the date, the defeat, the war that explained why 9-11 happened. At least in the US, I don't know in this country, um, all of post-colonial Arab history was reduced to, uh, uh, to that defeat. And you know, there's nothing more dehumanizing than defeat. Um, with the result that you couldn't, write, you couldn't see anything else uh, happening. Then a decade later, the Arab Spring happens, and you ask yourself, OK, so where is the fight for dignity comes from? Where is the, where is the intellectual genealogy of the history um, of, of Karama Insania? And you don't have a book that will help you write it back to the late 40s and 50s and 60s. Even though this intellectual tradition changes, the Karama Insania that came in 2011 has a strong debt to the 90s, uh, um, not only to the 50s and 60s. But this is a history that needs to be sort of uh, um, uh, written. Now, we normally... When you, put the, you, when you think about the global 60s, which I don't know in this country, it's a big deal in the US for many years now, you see a little bit of a divided kind of uh, uh, sort of narrative structure. On the left side is mostly what you can find in histories uh, of the 60s, especially public histories, including actually the biographies that just came out uh, um, on Nasser by Alex Rowell, uh, which, is a, which is a wonderful uh, uh, book, but you wouldn't know any of that side of the 60s uh, uh, from that book. It is, again, would give you a sense of personality cults, of insulated ideologies, of sort of empty, <coughs> empty political speech. Um, the cause of Palestine would would, would, you know, would be associated mostly... Um, negatively, uh, again, divorced from, from the cause of dignity. Um, and everything would be sort of under, under the defeat, including the collapse of secularism. Now, if you look at the global 60s elsewhere in the world, you find all of that revolution as, as a kind of a self-liberation, uh, emphasis on social justice, and so on and so forth, uh, um, including uh, uh, sort of a critique of patriarchy, uh, sexual liberation. You're not going to find these very much in the histories of the 60s in the Arab world. So the question is, uh, when you read the intellectual records, you do find a lot of that. So the question is, what kind of story, what kind of narrative can bring the 60s into a more sort of integrated narrative without being apologetic, in the sense, because, you know, 67, 67, but without reducing it. In a way, what I'm saying is that the time is right for, for a new kind of history. You know, we normally write history when we have at least three conditions met. First of all, empirically, when we have new evidence, when we have a new corpus of evidence, when you have new theoretical and conceptual frameworks or a new perspective. But these also affect the sources, things that were not Considered to be sources are now becoming sources because we have you know new, new tools in our disposal, and also when the values change, the norms, the 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 uh, the sentiments, the attitudes, uh, um, and uh, especially in the last decade, uh, that allows us to see things in the 60s that before that could not actually come as a subject or it is something that people with literary criticism and poetry and, uh, you know, in the field, they dealt with a lot of this. But otherwise, it doesn't cycle into a public narrative, something that people can read, uh, like they would read books about uh, um, 1960s China, Maoism and so on, right? Uh, So that's, I think, why I think the time is... uh, is right for that. Now, I, I prefer to tell the story of the sixties through um, through a group of intellectuals. Actually, I have a few dozens. I'm just putting a few here. Um, whether it's Yassin Hafez, who is uh, um, a very young uh, sort of Syrian ideologue from the Euphrates Valley. His mother is Armenian. Uh, survived the genocide um someone who started on the wrong feet by becoming a theoretician of of neo which is as you know um was quite was quite violent but then um was able to step back from that historicize even his own uh, uh biography as a, as a collective uh, story and and um of course uh, moved for exile, uh, Palestinian theoretician, Nadia Alouz. who also worked in uh, Dar el Talia, the press of Bashir al daouk uh, Nadia is one of the first, actually, people <coughs> who completely disappeared from, from the record uh, with, with quite uh, um, many books, early 60s, that begin to think of, of a revolutionary Palestinian transformation. Um, it was still under Nasserism, but you can already see a little bit of an independent kind of thought. Samud Rubi, you might know him as a translator of Franz Fanon with with Gamal Atasi. But this is a very fascinating guy. He's translating Russian literature. Um, He's also having a heart condition. So it makes him a very intimate interlocutor of Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, uh, who also suffer from a heart condition. I'll tell you later about Nasser. I'm in the process of uh, assembling his uh, medical file. I'm almost done. And, and, and it's, uh, they have an interesting story together. Louis Awad, literary critic poet of Cambridge, of Princeton. But, of course, someone who env- envisioned a different kind of socialism and produced some of the first critiques of um, of the socialist um, system, especially with relation to book production, intellectual circulation, and so on, but also responsible for some serious troubles and headache for Palestinian intellectuals in Beirut, like Sayer, uh, um Sayer, um, editor of Hewar, that is uh, uh, um, uh, a brilliant cultural um, magazine, Louis Awad exposes the fact that they got money from the uh, Cultural Congress, uh, you know, uh, well, the CIA essentially, and that was the end for Taufik Sayyed. His brother Faysal is one of the first to, as uh, existentialist philosopher, but one of the first to actually understand the plight of 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 this generation in sort of ontological terms, uh, but also one of the first to actually write about Uh, the colonization uh, of Palestine and of Zionism in in terms that will be familiar to you today in terms of settler colonialism. He put one of the first books out there. It was a big hit at the time. Suheil Dries editor of el Adab probably doesn't need much of an introduction. Lutfil-Huli, the Egyptian, but... Um, as well, um, a lawyer, a, poet, uh, uh, um, a playwright, uh, uh, an editor, but also uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's interlocutor, someone who is actually trying to write the 60s into uh, some form of universal ethics of liberation that Sartre was uh, interested in articulating before Sartre turns its, its back on this, on this group. this Safari and Abdallah Abdel you might not know them. Uh, but they are, they are pedagogues. These are philosophers, ideologues, people who put books together, but they are really focusing on creating, and I'll explain later, a new kind of subjectivity. Laila Balbeki passed two weeks ago, uh, and Radal Saman, novelists, uh, literary critics, poets. Um, their argument is very interesting. Uh, essentially, they're arguing that they're writing about sexuality. They are uh, concerned with sexuality, not for the sake of se- sexuality as much as for the sake of uh, corporal sovereignty, sovereignty over one's body. And that's an argument for decolonization. And they're extending a line of argumentation, which is anti-patriarchal, and which will uh, later on, especially in Saman's case, um, would actually used as a critique of a certain uh, uh, revolutionary subjectivity that is uh, emerging in the late 60s, very patriarchal. You might know her from her affair with uh, Hassan Kanafani. She published the love letters. I read them. Uh, um, but eventually, she married Bashir Daouk, the guy below. Uh, um, and so these are some of the people I'm looking at. And, um, um, and these are some of their books. Um, this is Hanamina I didn't talk about him, but that's that's a person who's uh, 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 begins to 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 actually articulate, conceptualize a certain condition that I'll talk about in a in a, in a second. Uh, a certain kind of total crisis of of being that is uh, um, important. Uh, this one, Mal Karama. This is. Uh, 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 Yusuf Syed, the brother of, of Fais and Taufik. That's the dedication page that he dedicates this book. But he's, he's an economist. Um, and already there, this is 61. And already then, the idea of, 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 of dignity, of Karama, uh, gets a center stage in the intellectual consideration of uh, this generation. Um, other people who are interesting is Rali Shukri, the, the, the Egyptian literary critic. He writes about Rad al-Saman as well, uh, a very nice book, Rad al-Saman Without Wings, uh, because a lot of her was not only what she wrote, but the way she was. She would drink whatever she wants, do whatever she wants, sleep with whatever she wants. And it was very difficult for the other men there in Beirut time to compute that. Uh, but Rali Shukri understood that it needs a certain theorization. And he wrote about her. But he also wrote Ada al muqawama which you might know from, from, from Kanafani. Um, but that's kind of a much more broader consideration of it in a way that transitions Arab thought at <coughs> the time from the politics of Iltizam to that of muqawama, which is a big change that I'll talk about towards the end. This is Leila Baalbeki. You might uh, uh, know this novel. It's an existentialist novel when, when she writes, look, I don't care very much about you know, Vietnam and, and Rhodesia and other problems, I kind of paraphrase. What I care when I get up in the morning is how do I cross the street with a seven uh, centimeters high heel shoes without, without crashing. And you know, it's not that it's kind of teen nihilism, as much as she is actually trying to bring back herself, her subjectivity, her body, vis-a-vis the national. Right? Where to salvage that? Um, there are other books that you know um, Safa Dijil al Qadar I mean you can see how this is a you know uh, um, a combination of Baathism and existentialism, but these are some of the books that are coming. Uh, I deal with hundreds of these books, um, not, not, not uh, um, just this, but um, essentially, if it's time to write these the history of this era, using these intellectuals, using these books, the magazine, this corpus, which is actually a new intellectual corpus. Normally, you know, now, I don't know, again, in this country, back in the US, everything is an archive, alternative archive, you know, archivists, it drives them crazy. But uh, uh, you can talk, you can actually conceptualize uh, 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 the, the, the corpus of this generation as a kind of intellectual archive that haven't, haven't got much attention as, as, as a body of work with coherency. Now, when you read it, there is a ground zero there that goes back to the late 40s, which is actually what makes the 60s the 60s here. First of all, there is the, the material crisis of, of, of wretched poverty, of hunger, of disease, and the fact that life expectancy, look, in Egypt, is in the late 30s, it's about 35 for a woman and 32 for a man. We're talking about people living their entire life when they're sick. Uh, um, uh, so there's this crisis, but there's the crisis of sovereignty and authenticity in the sense that a crisis of being um, that are also, in a way, political crisis and a sense of fragmentation, not only of the land. You know, the way the Arab world was put together after World War One, as you all know, this artificiality of the region. <laughs> It mirrors artific- artificiality of a destroyed or you know disfigured uh, uh, self. So it's an internal, internalization of a certain fragmentation. The term Tajzia really speaks about that. It speaks about this fragmentation geographically and you know geopolitically, but it speaks of the internal fragmentation. You find it a lot in the language of the bath. But basically, when you take all these things together, as in Hanamina's memoir, uh, um, where they sell their sister. Uh, uh, for essentially domestic slavery so they can make a living because they can no longer make money from uh, 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 silkworms due to, uh, what was it, I think, uh, synthetic Japanese uh, replacement of some sort, um, but all of them speaks of some kind of subhuman existence, a total crisis, the one which is material but also metaphysical and ontological. That's the ground zero of it. And it's very important to connect to this, this, this sense, because the solutions you find in the late 40s, coming out of you know, the politics of liberalism, speak a lot about you know, social justice. Everybody is writing about social justice in the late 40s, no matter where they come from. Said Kutub writes about it, right? But what you have is these social contracts in which they expect the state to actually kind of uh, 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 mediate. Uh, this is a known language, and some of it does carry forward into the 15th and 60s. What, what is unique about the 50s and 60s, I think, in the Arab world, is actually that both Baathism and Nazarism, forget just talking about nationalism and all of this, what they do uh, they do try to provide is liberation theology. Is actually a certain kind of, of, of a solution to this total crisis, not just a political nationalist solution. So the question is, if they're trying to, to, to uh, uh, sort of offer a libera- uh, liberation theology, how does it work? What is this liberation theology? What are the terms that, that underscore it? How come it became an article of faith for an entire generation? And why were they willing to choose one leader and follow one leader? Again, in the old narrative, if you think about you know, personality cult, the people appear to you quite dumb. Like, you know, they're marching uh, uh, you know, behind an idol. For what? They bewitched, they're stupid, they're passive. But if you think about it as liberation theology, there is a, there is a logic to it, even if it fails in the end. Okay, So uh, within this liberation theology, it becomes quite clear that the ten, dignity, karama, uh, becomes center stage. You, again, you have to read for many years and a lot to, to, to see how this concept becomes very dominant in the 50s, not only in Nasser's speeches. Um, but elsewhere in the region. And the story is actually not that... The other problem with the story is that it's an Egyptianized story that imposed on everybody else in the region. Um, now, Nasserism is, of course, an Egyptian phenomenon, but I'll, I'll show why, why there is a, um, a significant dosage of, of, of Baathism in it. Um, so that's what I'm trying to kind of uh, understand. Now, when, when you find that a society is trying to create... Consciously, a new type of subject, a new kind of person, you know there is a revolutionary thinking at play. Um, there are marks of what is a revolution. And then you know from the history of the 15 and 60s that normally the tendency is to reduce the revolutionary period to coup d'etats, because that was the vehicle towards power, uh, <coughs> undeniably. But immediately you begin to see, not immediately, take two, three years, that the ambition is to create a new kind of subject. And that's a mark of a revolutionary um, uh, thinking. It's a new era of men and women. The, cre- the feminist would cre- think would be that it's really about uh, men and that the feminism is kind of an ossified state feminism. But regardless, there is this idea of a new subject. You can see it in this caricature of this you know, self-assertion, independence, uh, uh, um, uh, initiative, everything that the, the, the colonized subject of previous eras, this fragmented this incoherent, uh, defeated subject, did not have. They are creating this Jadid and that's that kind of part of, of, um, of the ambition of this liberated, dignified subject. Um, but you can also trace it in the, in the poetry of Adonis, in the Fatih al-Miyar al dimaskawi when he's writing, and it's interesting, about this new subject, right? He is the wind that blows without retreat, the water that won't return to its source. He creates his, um, his kind in his image. He has no ancestors, no roots. Uh, oh, his roots are in his footsteps. Vast as the wind, he walks in the abyss. Right? This is this new revolutionary kind of subject. And of course, it's very problematic. His roots are in his footsteps. That would bring very serious critique later on from Islamists about turaf, about about patrimony, about cultural heritage. Uh, but not, and, and Adonis would walk back on this in e- immediate f- weeks after June 5th. Um, but he walks in the abyss. And remember this term, the abyss, because this total crisis with which I started, this ontological, metaphysical crisis, could be theorized as the abyss. The term returns again and again. Uh, but that's if we accept this kind of you know, theological reading. Now look, Aflac is important here. If you, if you know something about Aflac, when you read, when you read Aflac, <coughs> Uh, most of what you read about him is kind of negative say so, okay he 's writing in a language nobody can understand the language is weird his suits are too big on him he 's wearing pajama half the day he 's not charismatic he 's weird you know what what exactly you know how how can this guy become you know the, the focus the intellectual focus on on the youth, including Yasin Hafez, this young guy who meets them in in uh, uh, uh in the Euphrates Valley when he visits, but later kind of moves away from this. Uh, so there is something about the language of Ba'athism which is important. One could add he, here even Anton Sada, which interfaces it in interesting ways, but it's not, not, not important now very much. Um, you look at the language of Ba'athism. He writes about love, about faith, oneness, eternity. The oneness is the, the antidote to the tajziyah, to the fragmentation, and hence unity later. Um, this idea of salvation, but rebirth. Aflak wants a new subject. He wants a new kind of Arab person to emerge there, very slowly. He doesn't want to rush it. It's not about power. It's not about capturing the state. When they tell him, look, what about, you know, okay, you've been writing for 20 years about this and this. What about capturing the state as a vehicle for transformation? He said, that will come. First, we'll transform the youth. We'll create, and it's kind of like a Greek Orthodox slow disclosure of God, in a way, or a Sufi process, uh, sort of, if you will, that is very meaningful for, for, for young people who follow it. It's extremely meaningful, but you have to be able to read uh, and understand this language. Otherwise, you are kind of excluded, sort of, for it. And the, the Syrian officers of the 60s, with their coup d'etat, they had a hard time connecting to it, and they looked down on that eventually. Um, but what is missing from Aflak is sovereignty, it's the action is the power, uh, it's the actualization of this subject that doesn't seem to, that is passively waiting to be transformed in a way. Uh, but all of this language exists for about 15 years in a, in a serious way um, before Nasser. And sovereignty becomes something of a preoccupation. You don't find it in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You find general talk about istiklal, but not siyada, not sovereignty. And sovereignty becomes an important focus here because it's being imagined as, of course, the main element that would actually bring freedom and dignity. But also the fact that as long as you don't have sovereignty, actually, you remain a slave. You remain in this abyss in this, in this situation. So you have to become sovereign, not only as a nation or as a collective, but as a person on your own affairs. And that includes these, these feminists who took it to a completely different direction than the men expected. But that's the same argument, essentially. But the idea is that life before sovereignty does not is, is life that not, not worth living. It is actually a jailia. that's where actually also I'll mention Saad Kutub later if you think about about him mirroring this in his language right so there is a drive towards sovereignty and and this is not coming it came from anton Sada, but he was executed uh, but it is not coming from Baathists, and and without this, there is no freedom right so the question is it becomes the the vehicle towards towards freedom. Now, here, if we accept this kind of uh, a, a theological reading as a political theology, basically, as an effort to read it, I would argue, and you know, I made this argument in, 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 in article forms already about, about this decolonization as, as an experience of the sacred, right? As an experience of liberation. The act of liberation uh, will explain exactly what creates this effect of, of sacredness, of, of uh, uh, transcendental experience that you're part of something bigger. But the interesting thing here that um, this theology of liberation, it, it marries the theological and the political, which is the main sign of the 15th and 60s. And the tragedy of and the difficulty of separating them after, uh, after June 5th. Um, now, look at the language of Nasserism. This is a language of Nasserism and Baathism uh, uh, um, combined you begin to find these terms circulating in various speeches uh, with relation to each other and always with relation to the ultimate goal of dignity. Um, and it's a language that, it's a, it's a new political language that did not existed before. If you just listen to this for a very long time, this language was seen as this empty talk, at this like, you know, rhetoric, balara, or something of that sort. But it was not thought of as a sacred <coughs> speech. As actually a speech that has uh, uh, emancipatory properties that are critical for this generation. The young generation understand people begin to, to, they would also divest from this language after 67, after slowly. But at this point, this language, which is a, a fusion of, 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 of Baathi language and Nasserist language, again, the Baathis are first to think about this, is, is uh, emerging. Um, and for Nasser, you know, if we think about if we think about this language as part of you know, uh, as a sacred you know, as a sacred language, the question how how does it function? Like, how does it liberate? What does it actually what does it what does it actually do that people or even protagonists in, in novels you can see this you know uh, uh, you know like in the open door uh, uh, a young teenager feels liberated by by a speech actually by a. Uh, the nationalization speed of 56. So the question is, how, how does it happen? And the, and the center for, for understanding this is this idea of sacrifice. First of all, the fact that you're willing to take the cause of your own freedom and do something about it. Because only then you're beginning to transcend your situation as a slave. When you're basically recognizing the situations and you're willing to do something. And the something is attached to a cause. So when I say I'm willing to die for, for a cause, right? I sacrifice the cause, essentially, especially if it has an intrinsic value, a deep intrinsic value uh, uh, um, that relates to liberation, Uh, nationalizing the Suez Canal or liberating Palestine, but not Yemen, for example, not the war in Yemen, 62, 65. That's that's a cause that has low uh, low, uh, intrinsic uh, 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 value in terms of emancipation. Um, But once you... Once you uh, uh, commit to the cause and you're willing to to die for it, and if you succeed in your cause, um, the, the result of this is the experience of transcendence. So of course, collectively, you can imagine of the 56 nationalization of the Suez Canal as the beginning of that. That's where this language for the first time comes together and Nasser overnight metamorphoses into Nasserism, right? But you don't... You, that transformation tells you that that actually something is happening. But right afterwards, this language is applied to small and big things, like the inauguration of a new school, or of course Tahwil el Nil in in the Suez, you know, in the in the Aswan dam, the actual building of the Aswan dam. There's a very nice dissertation about this from Ali al musalim about the sacredness, the sacredness of building the dam, about the experience of people that she interviewed decades later talking about the metamorphosis. It's a laboratory for this in It's a place where you are being rebuilt, when you have a cause that is a worthy cause. Uh, so the sacrifices are not, don't think military sacrifices. Every small act, just being a good you know, a, a, a nurse in a hospital and do your work and so on, it's a revolutionary act. It's a small, it's a small act. But it's an act that is embedded with this kind of, of meaning. Um, so th- this, is, uh, uh, this is the kind of ethos that is slowly uh, emerging. And this is why Nasser, who basically put it together as a, as an, as a political act, uh, slowly emerged as a kind of, of, of demigod. Now, for him, at the center of it is this idea of willpower. In liberalism, you have a contract. Uh, you know, the government is getting your vote uh, and in return will give you this and this and that. Uh, but between you and the government, there's the law. That's the contract. In Nasserism, he is the law. His speech is the law because he creates the norm. He creates the norm because his norm is the exception. Think again about the nationalization speech. Nobody knows he's going to nationalize. A few people know he's not going to nationalize. He announces the nationalization on the, you know, on stage, it's broadcast live, it's, you know, teams in the Suez Canal hear this on their radio transistors, the, right, the internet of the 50s, and physically go to, to seize the installation of the Suez Canal. So his words, his speech activates history. It actually does things. Um, and in that it creates, it's an exception, it creates this, this new norm. And I think uh, um, that's also the power of instant sovereignty. It's something yeah. Aflak never had. The, could, the guy couldn't do anything, uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know. So this is this is a, 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 again a cycle of, of of exception, action, exception, and norm that turn Nasser actually and the state in his in his uh, uh, image as the as the center of transcendence. It's it's the, the locus of transcendence. Which, of course, if you're an Islamist, you're not going to like it, because he stole sovereignty from God, because it's not, uh, it's not for the state to take this. Um, but in general, I think uh, uh, we can think about this liberation theology um, as a measure of decolonization, as a, as a way of looking at decolonization also beyond the Middle East. It's not the only place where you find this. You find it in African history with the new when you African men and women, you find these demigods already the six, all, all over the 60s. Now, when you think about it in such terms of the global South, um, the Arab experience is not that exceptional in the end of the day. All, all third world, so to speak, generations, first generation regimes uh, have been defeated in the late 60s. It's not only the 67, right? So what what is this phenomenon that is happening? There are a lot of lessons here that could be could allow us to think about the 60s, I think, sort of more broadly. Um, relating to the unity, look, in most of the narrative, again, it's Arab unity that is the key, as, as a function of Pan-Arabism. If you unite two states together, um, and that's this kind of give you this sense of, of, of liberation, and if they're not united, everybody is falling apart. It's a little bit reductionist sort of uh, uh, um, uh, a view. It's not about the political project. It's not about the actual unification of, of entities as much as the internal unification that happens with it. This newly found... And of course, for them, you know, they thought, look, if you're really going to unite the Arab world, it's going to be bigger than the U.S., and it's going to be bigger than the Soviet Union. right? So within their imagination, there is like an, an, an enormous block waiting to be not simply revealed, but reinvented. Um, so that, that's uh, 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 part of it. And as you know, in 58, it was not on the books of Nasser. It's the Baathists who take the airplane without asking the president, landing in Cairo, and offering unification. They landed on Nasser's birthday. That's not the president he expected. He refused to see them. Actually, for a first day, he refused to see them. And you know, eventually, he dictates the terms. Uh, and and Unification itself is not, as you know, very successful the way it was carried, but the, uh, the emancipatory message of it was, uh, uh, was enormous, especially for Palestinians who awaited to be integrated into it in, in some form or another. Um, and we will talk about the Palestinians uh, in a second because they are the first kind of to move away from this. Um, so, okay, I, I think I've covered this. Uh, um, the, 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 the transition of Nasser into this demigod, into this liberator, is not something that could be understood in terms of charisma or uh, um, you know, in terms of uh, um, uh, you know, the mass, bewitching the masses in, in some sort of general way. It, it should be understood in terms of, I think, this liberation theology. Now, all of this, or what they call in, 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 in Egyptian, Zahf that you know, Sherif Yunis wrote about nicely, the sense of march, right? The sense of this march towards liberation, which is, again, it's small things and big things, right? Um, when it begins to be applied uh, um, towards the, the mid-'60s to Palestine, Nasser is not on board. He was not ready to go to Palestine. He was not ready to liberate Palestine. Um, and it made a lot of excuses all along. He is being shamed, actually. Into he's being shamed into uh, 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 sacrifice for Palestine. Uh, specifically, he's being shamed for his unwillingness to sacrifice, which again uh, is, is 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 difficult to. It, it, it's actually undoing his whole his whole persona as a liberator. This is the ultimate cause. This is the cause that left. It's more important than Yemen. There's intrinsic value to it. Uh, people in the region wanted it. It's, it's a just cause. So how come you're not committing? How come you're not doing anything about it? There is a reading that I do in the book about how he walks back on, the, on, on his refusal, uh, and is being kind of shamed into action. But already before that, you know, the war happens and, 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 and so on. And, and there is this argument that you also find in the literature about the fact that, uh, well, the war happened, and now they discovered self-critique. Now they're criticizing. Now, this is co- the record actually completely denies that. Um, and let me uh, about 10 years ago, I, uh, I went to interview uh, Sadek El-Azam, the Syrian philosopher, uh, about something else. And we talked about the other thing, and when that conversation ended, we, we, we kind of transitioned to talk generally about the 60s. Um, and he said, you know, he said something interesting. He said, to be honest, everything that, you know, he wrote self-critique, uh, you know, not that about El He wrote, you know, the self-critique. So others took it. He said, he said, listen, everything was kind of there before. We kind of knew. We wrote about it. He made a few recommendations for me to read. He sent me to the Asat Arabia, which is the magazine that Bashir al daouk starts. Bashir al starts this magazine and starts Dar el Talia, a revolutionary, a revolutionary publishing house similar to Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli in, in Egypt or to Maspero. This, this is the kind of things he published, but he also publishes in 65, Dirasat Rabi'a by Mary saying, listen, we need, we, we cannot just have general talk about things, we need studies, we need facts, we need analysis, so he, that's what he's and it is there that uh, uh, Sadaka doesn't begin to make some of his arguments. In fact, if you read the, the, the literary magazine, literary criticism, but also this, especially in Beirut, because as Louis Albert said, at this point in Cairo, it's kind of suffocated by, by by state thinking. But especially in Beirut, you find all aspects of critique that are ascribed after '67. You find them, you find them before, quite significantly. Uh, it's not news for people who do literary criticism. For those of you who do literary criticism, I'm sure you, you, you've seen that. But um, otherwise, it's in most narratives it's being ascribed to something that happens after this. Now, I also don't think that self-critique is not a big deal. Again, it existed all the time. The issue about the issue about the self-critique self-criticism is that it claims a political space. It's the struggle over the political. And it's, and it's the fact that it is married to, to Nasser and to, theolo- to the, the theology of liberation. That's, that's what suffocates the meaning. And uh, here, I'll give you two examples of this. Um, everybody knows Nasser's resignation speech on June 9th, where he came to the television and said, you know, we've been together in good time and old times, but I'm actually... Uh, living, uh, uh, I'm resigning, returning to the ranks of the people. We've experienced a setback and so on. And how the people call him back and re- refuse uh, the resignation. And the next day, he um, uh, rescinds his resignation. What is less known than the day before, maybe Professor Avish Schleim knows that. But the day before, King Hussein actually comes with his own resignation speech that you'll be very, it will be very difficult to find out. Actually, it took me a long time to find this speech. <laughs> uh, uh, um, it's not translated. It is somewhere. Uh, actually, Palestinians reproduced it in 1969. This is how I found it. Basically, it says, we've been defeated. But the war goes on. If you listen to the radio, el Arab, you know they're still winning. But for Hussein, it's all over. Nobody stopped the war after King Hussein said, we are being defeated. It's when Nasser comes, and Nasser was forced to come because of King Hussein. Nasser comes the next day, and, and what he tries to do is basically to separate the political and the theological, so to speak, take responsibility. A lot of my colleagues, they credit Nasser with trying to take responsibility. Um, Khaled Fahmi is one. He say, you know, in some of his lectures, he said, well, you know, he's taking responsibility. But I don't think he's taking responsibility. I think he's running away from responsibility. This is not a, a, again a liberal contract where oh I'm sorry I screwed up, I return the mandate you vote a new. There is no other system. He is the system. He is the norm. He is the law. What are you resigning from? And this is indeed why the people cannot fathom this separation. The separation of the political from the theological is a return to the abyss. It's a return to this to this situation from which you know the post-colonial project is trying to. Uh, 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 emancipate them from so this is not the right time to, to separate the two and there is a major force not to separate the two with Umm so Umm Kulthum immediately goes on a series of concerts, I studied very carefully for this book, her concert in uh, Paris and I interviewed the person who managed it, who kind of put it together Ali saman he was the guy that brought Sartre to, to Egypt at the time um, and you would not believe, you would not believe. There's a new book about it by an Egyptian uh, writer, very, very nice, uh, about all her, uh, uh, all her three years, uh, until Nasser's death, of how she refuses the defeat, refuses. The refusal of the defeat is the refusal of this kind of separation. And um, you, you, would not, you would not believe this concert she is giving in Paris. Everybody is like from all over Europe, uh, people of the diaspora come. Tons of Algerians. And you have to remember, six years later, the Algerians have been massacred in the streets of, uh, of Paris uh, uh, when they demonstrated, were thrown to the same. This is a time for them to talk about it, to acknowledge. It comes five days after the uh, 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 Sartre uh, basically uh, uh, betrayed them. There was a very close interlocutor of, of these people and uh, um, came up in support in Israel a few days before the war. So there's a sense that the city betrayed them. This universal emancipation that was imagined was not; it was universal. It's not only a new Arab subject. They would be, you know, subjects of the world. You know, uh, uh, the same rules will apply to them as to everyone else. Um, So her, her, uh, uh, and it's the first time she lives abroad in Kufum. Her, her uh, 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 concert. Where she performs at Lal, and it's for the first time also when the ruins, it's, it's about love, but when the ruins are the ruins of the project. So there is, there is this very strong emotional. Now everybody is coming to this conference shopkeepers, but also King Hussein comes in disguise. He just sits there on the first, on the first front, comes late, people identify him. There's the second, the third uh, concert in the, in, in the second or the third. Actually, someone jumps and she falls to the ground. It's uh, but she, you know, they said that at the end of the show she insists of going back. Uh, um, There's this defiance to the defeat, and and, and the defiance to see Nasser sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, castrated, humiliated, uh, um, and so on. There's also a lot of writing. Against, Rad al Saman is one of those who write against uh, the effort to, you know, the, the project of maintaining this, this unity. Uh, uh, she, she, uh, and by now they have critique of this whole language. This is, they call it blind language, dead language. Rasan Kanafani does that, Rad al Saman, others do this. But the question is the theory is that if Nasser is going to go, they're going to be back in the abyss. And Nasser himself, in this, one of his speeches, says, I'm, I feel like I'm working, I'm walking in the abyss lost in the sense it's a sense of you know it's a profound sense of disorientation you're not anchored, right it's it's uh, um and this is exactly the sense that the kutubis would respond to and i'll say more about the kutubis later on um but the question is you know to to read defeat is this return to this abyss now another way of reading um or, or, or maybe before that, just kind of connecting it a little bit to um, where Palestinians are. Palestinians are the first, actually, to divest from Nasser, uh, um, to understand that uh, uh, not only they had to beg for this liberation, um, it's also not going to happen on, on, on these terms. They have to take their own cause of liberation in their own hands. Uh, and this is the power of self-liberation. But they don't do it just with the, with the gun. They do it with the gun and the pen, which is very, which is what really puts them apart. Um, you can map Palestinian thought, and there are people who do this. Uh, 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 Palestinian history, in general, as you know, was assumed not to really intellectually exist from 48 to 67 because of the last decade and a half and so on. This is an old old view already. Now you have works like uh, those of. Uh, uh, that actually show how much happened in terms uh, especially of, of this critical literary thought um, uh, that is transitioning into the, into the political thought. We know it mostly through Kanafani. But actually, there are a lot of other people who do this. And they are the ones who are transitioning. They do two things. First of all, they are abandoning the concept of iltizam, which is associated with Nasserism, and moving to mukawama. Mukama, what it does, it actually, and and now for the first time, when they do this, the work of Fanon makes sense because it was translated immediately when it came out. Nobody read it. It was not a big deal. When Bashir Daouk publishes it for the Wubi, it didn't sell very much initially. It wasn't the blockbuster it will become, right? Uh, Even though the intro by Sartre tells you, theorizes that. Right? It theorizes when you take a gun and liberate yourself, you em- emancipate it. Of course, it's more complicated than that, also for Fanon, because when you take a gun and kill someone, you also get PTSD, and likely. And Fanon saw both things in his clinical work, and his theoretical work, and his clinical work, our intention here. But uh, um, uh, uh, this is something that will be elaborated and written on, um, but they, they begin to, to take this kind of thing away from, away from Nasser. They're not waiting to be emancipated. And actually, they're giving Nasser a lot of headache. He cannot control uh, the rise of Palestinian resistance um, after 67, especially when they're also trying to liberate the language. They're thinking this is a dead language. All these and all of this, you know, uh, and, and all of this language. And with this, they become also makers of the, of the new Arab left. It's, it's a left that uh, uh, um, transcends the Middle East. It connects to you know, other locations, other organizations. It's a, it's a global 60s moment. I, I wrote about it separately, um, specifically with relation to Paris, to show how the cause of Palestine in Paris became a cause. And what allowed me to do this and to show how it happens in Paris is that I found that um, the, Israeli, um, the Israeli, Israeli diplomats, but also the Mossad, was very concerned, early 60s. They noticed that students in Paris begin to not take Nasser very seriously, but begin to talk about liberation in ways that were not familiar and concerning to them. So they asked the Israeli students in Paris to spy on, on all the other students. And they had a program for about two, three years. Uh, and I got the file of the program with everything they collected, all the manifestos, all the solidarity, all the events. And you can see for three years how slowly they begin to talk about Palestine, I think in the same way in which is being discussed today. It's very familiar to us today, but not in the 60s, right? How, how, they, how they build it. This is also something that is happening here. Um, And not happening, uh, especially not from Syria, which is a a neo-Baaf that is very sectarianized and very violent. Already all these intellectuals are moving out of Syria, but also doesn't happen in Syria. So there's an alternative sort of cause that is a a vector that is happening here that uh, um, intersects with Nasserism only when, in 1969, Nasser negotiates for the Lebanese to allow resi- Palestinian resistance to Israel from within, within uh, uh, Lebanon. And uh, that starts a different story uh, of the Lebanese Civil War and so on that is uh, kind of I can project it forward, but it's uh, outside of pr- really what I'm trying to do. Like The first image I showed you, the people uh, on uh, electricity poles and so on, was from Nasser's funerals. I begin the book with taking the reader to Nasser's funeral, but not only in Cairo. There were funerals all over the Middle East every village every town so i go to all of these small funerals in Lebanon, in palestine in syria just kind of this is kind of how how it starts um, but it ends with nasser's very slow death um, nasser died over a, a three years beginning in 1967 from diabetes he had diabetes since the 1950s but it was more or less under control one shot of insulin at nine o'clock and more or less is okay that stopped being the case with the stress of the June War. I have his blood work from before the war and after the war, so you can actually see. And when the CIA doctor, the, the CIA stole it, I mean, uh, Ashraf Mawan stole the blood work and gave it to the CIA. His, his son, you and I'm quite sure of that. I can explain later on why I think it's him and what I saw in the documents. But um, uh, w- when I realized that that you know the cia says look at the blood work it said this person is on a verge of diabetic coma it's not sustainable life and when you understand that the next 3 years in egyptian history is harbel stinzaf it's it's the attrition war and that this attrition war is actually is considered in in egyptian history as a thousand day war so this what you think about the 67 the 6 days to begin with is not it, there's no, no reason to think about it only in five days. It's actually a 1,000 days. It, it continues until Naso's death. So I decided to assemble his entire medical file. Uh, uh, doctors have diets, everything. And when you look at his medical file, and especially it's interesting in diabetes, diabetes is a, is, a, is, a, is a condition that you could not treat very well in the late 60s. There was uh, uh, not yet even artificial... Uh, um, Diabetes was not synthesized yet. That happens only much later in the 80s. A lot of this slow release that we have today did not exist then. It was extreme. It was almost like a death warrant. Uh, it was extremely difficult to to type 1 diabetes. It was extremely difficult to, to manage. Um, and you are very you're prone to stress because uh, uh, when you're under condition of stress, you have a lot of cortisol and adrenaline and stress hormones coming into your blood to initiate this kind of fight-or-flight response, and they flood your arteries, essentially or your, your, your system, with, with glucose, so you can actually... And uh, in a system where the insulin cannot deposit the glucose in the muscles as, as fuel, that, that results in a, in a, in a coma. So uh, there's a lot of... Each time there is stress in Nasser's life, during these three years, his blood works show that, but he accumulates, these are all the conditions. A uh, doctor helped me with the, exactly what I saw, you're right? That's not, I'm not that doctor. But uh, uh, um, essentially, uh, uh, there are Germans, Danish, British, uh, um, and of course, Soviet doctors that are trying to help him. He's also, as you know, he's smoking 80 cigarettes a day. Durubi's daughter tried to help him quit. Uh, uh, he, he doesn't. Uh, but he smokes, he smokes actually American cigarettes for all his anti-imperialism, by the way. <laughs> he started with actually very bad cigarettes when he was a field officer, but he upgrades. Uh, um, anyway, he's not, he's not very healthy. When you, when you look at the, at the uh, attrition war, at the political, military chart, and his medical chart, you see how they mirror each other. So in '69, when the Israelis crossed the Suez Canal into Egypt, and managed to sever a significant part of the country for, for more than 24 hours. Nasser has no idea what is happening there, and he's learning about that from the international press. His response is a heart attack. And in this medical tradition of the time, they don't tell him you had a heart attack, tell him you had a flu. They don't tell anybody he has a heart attack. Only the doctors know he has a heart attack. There's a tradition of... You don't want to burden the patient with the disease. The environment takes the burden on. But he begins to understand that things are wrong. So what I do, I actually read the way he embodies the defeat. Because eventually, the only thing that's going to separate the political and the theological is the the death of the subject. And this is why his death is this mass. And this is why the Egyptians and Arabs in general said two things. Said, first of all, June fifth killed him, which medically is true, um, and that his that his heart he gave his heart for you know for the cause, uh, which is also medically which is also medically true. So the book ends with the reader um, sort of uh, uh, um, experience this kind of slow death the slow death of uh, of the cause. Now, the question, and I'll just finish with this okay, what, what, you know, what are some the of these kind of post colonial lessons uh, to other areas and, and so on? Um, the total crisis of being with which I started exists, exists elsewhere in the global south, uh, essentially, different, different forms, different configurations, um, but uh, various uh, responses. Um, I think um, you know, we can give away a little bit of this mass politic and personality calls uh, cal- for the act of the individuation of sovereignty, the way he, he took sovereignty and embodied it. Um, this um, aspect of, li- of this liberation theology should transition us to another aspect that is debated at the time, you know, there's a sense that Nasserism and Baathism were secular and then it collapsed and you got religion, right? But really it's not so much about secularism and religion as much as um, a struggle over um, uh, transcendence, the sacred. Who can create this experience? The state or actually simply the fact that you are uh, uh, praying, that you're part of a religious community, that you're part of a a, 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 a practice whereby sovereignty belongs to God, and it's being uh, 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 interpreted by those who who uh, uh, can read the you know the, um, the legal uh, um, uh, corpus. Now, this is this is important because um, it allows us to rethink a little bit about the birth of Kutubism as a mirror. Now, some of it is, Fawaz Gilgis does it in his book. He basically says, look, Kutub and Nasser, they knew each other, they're a mirror image of each other, they both wanted the same thing, but he, the terms, the theological terms about which they argue or not, they argue about the exact same term. They both have a concept of Jalia, of nothing before sovereignty. They both talk about sovereignty. For Nasser, it's individuated, it's, he controls it for for Qutub, this is blasphemy, because sovereignty belongs to God. But they also argue about sacrifice. They both have a notion of sacrifice, and the notion of sacrifice that Kutubism has is not that different than what is being offered uh, uh, by Nasserism, and, it is, and it's and also privatized. For Kutubism, it's privatizing the notion of jihad. The notion of jihad is really remade in the 1560s. It's not the same notion as the 19th century. It is exactly that of taking your destiny in your own hands and doing something about it and this is why in prison as you know the Muslim Brotherhood did responds to this he responds very strongly to, to that reaction the Muslim Brotherhood do not, did not make this, this slip so there is a, a way of reading, uh, of reading that and there is a very interesting there is a chapter where um, you know Zainab El-Azali is, a, is an activist uh, uh, Islamic feminist the, sister, uh, the um, Muslim Sisterhood She uh, becomes a kutubist. She transitions, and she, in her memoir, uh, recounts her interrogation. When you read the script of her interrogation, you immediately understand this is not an interrogation. What do I mean? There's no intelligence to get out of her. There's no, like, what can she give them? She cannot give them anything, not where the weapons are hiding. This is an inquisition where they tell her, you know, you want the torture to stop, you have to go to Nasser. Where is your God now? Who is bigger, God or Nasser? That's really what it is for them about. She's very clear about that. And, and the script of her torture of her inquisition that and in the way she narrates June 5th, I think supports kind of some of what I'm trying to do here. Finally, um, I know I don't know if it's related to to historiographic debate you have here, but in the US, there's this manufactured, I think quite artificial. Um, debate about if you write in a theoretical mode or in a narrative mode, right? I, uh, um, with most of the graduate students, I want to theorize this and this and that, which is, which is of course, uh, 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 very nice, um, and not do narrative. So first of all, I, um, I reject this dichotomy. I write a I'm re- I'm story, you're going to meet the people, and you're writing the narrative. There are various reasons for doing this. Theory doesn't humanize. The problem of the Arab intellectuals here um, is that throughout the intellectual record, it doesn't matter if it's Aziz or Muhammad or Ahmed, it's almost like separated from their life. You actually don't know, you don't know their lives. You don't know their love lives. They're not coming as fully-fledged human beings the way you read you know, in European intellectual history. Narrative sort of does that. But beyond that... Um, narrative has no problem whatsoever for account for, you know, uh, a political theology in terms of theory, uh, the- uh, theoretical ends or any other. It's kind of a false uh, dichotomy, which is interesting because those who do theory, at least in the U.S., um, are, of course, against dichotomies, right? That's the, the big postmodern thing, but that's the only dichotomy they hold to is narrative versus theory, which is, uh, um, so, so I, I am trying to, 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 to write something that that people can relate to, kind of an academic. It's not a trade book, uh, and uh, that was explained to me painfully by several agents. Uh, um, I mean, initially, well, I'll tell you later. But anyway, uh, um, but it is a story that people who don't know anything about the region necessarily should be able to read. This the generation of the first Arabs, their story, and when you go to actually study their lives, they're quite, they're quite. They're quite remarkable. They're very rich. They're very nuanced. Uh, uh, and if what you care about are affairs, there are plenty of these two. Uh, and and they're actually intellectual and they're meaningful in other ways, right? So that kind of like the, the big project that I'm kind of trying to um, undertake. And uh, stop here. Yeah. yeah. I think Okay. Thing. Yeah. Thank you. I'll drink something. <laughs> Thank you. I want to
0: Thank you. Um, that was really intense. I'm not entirely sure. It was an intense spirit. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure where I've been. There were whole parts of what you were saying that were going right over my head. Couldn't connect. Other bits of it that were like going straight into the bloodstream. I was like... Oh my God, if only I could have had you for today's tutorials. (laughs) Anybody who's been in tutorial with me today is going to feel like we just relived all of this because we were talking about Jurgis's book and we were looking at uh, the other half of the tutorials. We're looking at the aftermath of 67. And so, you know, so much of what you're saying seems to feed straight into the concerns as we try and bridge between where what is strictly historical leaves off and where the realms of our brothers in political science picks up and analyzing the political fortunes of a region that follows after the intellectual and cultural strains that you are looking at. It is so clear that you have been deeply immersed in this world. What are we talking about, seven, eight years you've been writing this book? Yeah. I mean, it just comes pouring out because you just are able to assert without ever having to revert back to the source about what is going on in the intellectual life of a diverse region with many different strands and many different, and the point that I connected to initially was, it took me back to Samir Kassir's examination of the Arab Malays in the first decade of the 21st century. And he's contrasting a moment in which the Arabs have kind of lost their sovereignty to being reduced to being just a pawn on the global chessboard, and that Powers are able to act in their region without anyone in the region being able to stop them or assert their own will in the way that the Americans could, without UN sanction, assemble an army to go and topple a dictator that the Arabs themselves in all right-mindedness should have done for themselves. But they couldn't even, in their own backyard, act on those against whom the the loss of sovereignty was to be blamed. And he contrasts that with a notion of nahda. And nahda, to those of us with 19th century obsessions, is always going to be people starting in the mid-19th century and leading on up to the First World War. But to him, that wasn't the nahda that mattered at all. His nahda is much closer to what you're looking at, of Afro-Arab. It's that list you had of what gets left out of the story of the global 60s in the Arab world. The, the, The kind of liberation movements and social justice that was going on. And to to Samir Kassir, it is, you know, Afro Arab unity. It is the role of Arab cinema in conveying a notion of a new person. It's it's stuff going on in the middle of decades of the twentieth century. And if anything, it's an agenda being driven by the kind of people you're looking at. This is leading to a question. Eventually we get to one which is that as I look at the list of the intellectuals that you focus on, I am struck by how many of them are cultural rather than political in their, in their medium. These are novelists, these are poets. I mean, there are political philosophers mixed in and whatnot. Kassir was very taken by the role of the novelist, the poet, the filmmaker, the creative thinker. And I'm wondering whether in your analysis that the agenda of liberation and the notion of sovereignty passes from those who lost the trust politically, the Baathists and the Nasserists and whatnot, and is taken up instead by those who better capture an Arab vision through cultural expression. Or whether that's a misreading of where you're going in the kind of
1: cultural. Um, list that you got. So I would say, you know, you started with Samir Kassir. First of all, he's writing about, you know, it's a, a very Lebanese Nahda, but his Nahda is indeed not the 19th century, it's the 1990s. Mm. Uh, Ilyas Khoury also writes about it. He has a nice essay about the 1990s and the effort to uh, um, re-Nahdaize. Can you say that? Uh, the, Just the the, the, the the, you know, the Arab world, it's the Lebanese civil war ends. Um, and there are, um, there's a, there are a class of intellectuals in Lebanon who are actually trying very actively to reinvigorate the nada uh, in the form also of neoliberalism uh, um, and so on. It's very controversial, but, uh, but... That's not his agenda.
0: Certainly not the neoliberalism.
1: No, but, the, but the, uh, Elizabeth Kassab writes about it also a little bit, about mm-hmm. the, the return of the, the Nahda in mm-hmm. the 90s. It's a, it's a kind of a broad spectrum, but it's a moment like this because it's a moment of globalization. Mm-hmm. So it's rife with possibilities. It's rife with, with potential. Um, now, the intellectuals of the 50s and 60s, and for him, a lot of it is, again, okay, get the Syrians out. There is an issue of sovereignty here, <coughs> um, but you know the 50s, and the intellectuals of the 50s and 60s are not fringe intellectuals. This is the era in which intellectuals were deemed critical for the collective project. They are not the intellectuals that emerge after 67, who is a very good critic, is a very good, you know, but in exile. Uh, um, and out of the 67 would come the, the problematic, the of uh, and so on. But in the 50s and 60s. These are people who are constitutive of the project. Even in Syria, when Assad and these new Ba'athists, they wanted to participate in power, they needed to be able to speak a certain ideological language. And they're being trained. Because to be trained in the Ba'ath, it took many, many weeks, months of of preparation, of cultivation, of intellectual cultivation. It's not what the new Ba'ath does is they're saying, all right, we'll bring all our friends from the provinces, forget about these long ideological preparations and they can stuff the party, uh, uh, you know, apparatus and get the votes and and, and, and and ask the intellectuals. The defeat of the intellectuals in 67 is very important here. And I think, um, the, you know, the people I'm writing about, you know, they disappeared from our record here in the West, but not from the record of the region, like, you know, when you think about, okay, an intellectual, all this book of, you know, the fifties and 60s, it's again, Muhammad Hasnin Haikal. Like, everything is Haikal and Haikal and Haikal. <laughs> and, you know, so so this is, um, this is uh,
0: But my question really was, are you looking to cultural figures to be able to articulate the notion of social justice in the 1960s Arab world when... As you're saying, baptism is reduced to empty slogans. Just Only in 66. And so, I mean, is this the turn you make in your cultural study? Is that it's going to be happening more in the creative arts of the Arab world,
1: where you'll find the kind of... I don't accept the separation, and I don't think they have accepted the separation. I don't think it was a creative and these literary critics... Nasser reads them. He's really upset when they begin to publish in Beirut. And uh, he asks them, why do you publish in Beirut? Louis Awad, why do you publish in Beirut? Why not, why not here? Right? Look how many publishing houses we have. Someone look, says, look at how it looks, you know. Uh, um, these, these, these are not people who do these small things out there. They are critical. I don't mean to No, no, them. I know. But you know, de is saying, we, the literary
0: figures, are bringing consciousness back after the opium of the political slogans.
1: Yeah, and who writes it? Afik al Hakim, who's actually a, an older generation of these guys. Um, and um, you know, uh, has much to kind of repent, I guess, but he wants he wants back huh? he wants back a liberal language. Huh? This generation divested divested from the liberal contract. It did not provide to that they supported the revolution. This is a generation that have no problems giving all the liberal freedoms for this notion, of, for this sense of emancipation. It was worth more than the liberal freedoms. After 67, they want some of it back. It's true.
0: And why don't people like uh, philosophers, you know, you, you interviewed Sadiq Jelen You know, Why doesn't he feature? He is, after all, you know, one of those self. Critical thinkers. Ah, did he, he, he not feature in, in your list of the kind of intellectuals who defined?
1: This issue was is well known, so I didn't want to kind of uh, um, uh, focus on him very much uh, here. And I uh, and I also I also found the kind of critique that he is bringing uh, very. It, it's kind of uh, it's kind of very modernistic and rigid. Right in in, in that sense. Uh, It's about the defeat. It's a critique of the defeat of the Arab subject. And his defeat is very similar to the Israeli critique. I found a file that uh, is still classified in Israel. They don't don't let me uh, read the whole thing, but I got the executive summary and I got someone who read the whole thing. After 67, right afterwards, the Israelis had 5,000 POWs, Mm. mostly Egyptians. So they decided to study them like, who is this new, who is this person that went to war? Who is that, like, how can we, they were not sure how did they triumph in such a way? Because what you have here is the new Zionist person, which is also a new project of new subjectivity, going against the new Arab men, right? So they wanted to see, why did we win? So they brought the anthropologists and psychologists, psychiatrists, every, a battery of all experts in the state to study deeply these hundreds of POWs out of the 5,000 and issue a study and they subject them to a battery of tests. And basically, the the, res, the the conclusion was that the Egyptian subject failed to modernize. And on this counts, it's exactly what Azam says, on this counts. It doesn't separate religion, you know, it's superstitious. It, doesn't, it cannot tell uh, fact from fiction. Uh, uh, and so on and so forth. But the
0: zeitgeist. That's you talked about the zeitgeist. I mean, that's very much the thought of the time, right? And it's not yeah. surprising
1: that Israelis and a philosopher trained in the German tradition at Yale, right. even if he's a Syrian, right.
0: might have reflected... So
1: there is uh, something very similar in the way mm. both of them thought, thought about this uh, uh, project. But look, Palestinians don't think way. Right. Yeah, They're not at all. Yeah, no. They're, they're immense, right? They're taken off. They're flying.